Hey, Technical Human listeners, I'm on vacation this week and next, and our team has pulled one of our favorite interviews from our archives to share with you this week, an episode with Julie Albright on how our technologies are changing our relationships to one another. If you haven't had a chance to listen to the conversation yet, I think you'll enjoy it. This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. Today, I'm thrilled to be speaking with Dr. Julie Albright. Dr. Julie Albright is a sociologist specializing in digital culture and communications. She has a master's degree in social and systemic studies and a dual doctorate in sociology and marriage and family therapy. Dr. Albright is currently a lecturer in the departments of applied psychology and engineering at USC. Her research has focused on the growing intersection of technology and social and behavioral systems. She has appeared as an expert on national media, including the Today Show, CNN, NBC Nightly News, CBS, The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, NPR Radio, and many others. She's the host of the podcast, Reset Salon. Her new book, Left to Their Own Devices, How Digital Natives Are Reshaping the American Dream, published by Random House Prometheus Press, examines the impact of mobile, social, and digital technologies on society. Her forthcoming new project investigates our increasing reliance on digital infrastructure. Hi, Julie. Hi there. So Julie, I thought we would dive right into your new book, Left to Their Own Devices, How Digital Natives Are Reshaping the American Dream, which explores the significance of and the consequences of this omnipresent digital connectivity and that kind of environment where tech is everywhere. And the significance, especially to millennials, in what you're calling a digital immersion. What's the phenomenon that you see happening? Well, thank you, first of all, for having me. It's great to be in conversation with you about this today. It's funny because when I came to USC to study sociology, I was coming out of a couple of counseling degrees, and they said, we're all about new ideas. If you have new ideas, come and talk to us about it. We're excited about that. I thought, this is awesome. And I ran up to the guy, and this guy studied 15th century Basel missions. So that should have been my first clue. And I said, I want to study the impact of computing on society. And he looked at me and he says, what does that have to do with sociology? I thought, oh my gosh, here I thought I was in this cutting edge program. And the guys look at me like I'm insane. And it took a long time for people to understand that. But I saw the early days of the internet and then all the way now to our digitally enabled devices as a new context for social behaviors and a place where it was really going to reshape our fundamental social institutions from our relationships, our families, to our work, our relationship to government and nation state, et cetera, et cetera. And you know, fast forward to now, you can walk out on any street corner pretty much anywhere in the world, and you're going to see heads bent over, over cell phone devices, you know, it's really become like another appendage, particularly for young people or what we call digital natives, those that grew up in the world where there always was an internet. 
most people under 30, that's really been the case. And many of them now younger are growing up in a world where there always was mobility or these digitally enabled mobile devices like tablet or smartphones, laptops. And then thirdly, we have our littlest kids, our toddlers, even our infants growing up with digital devices in their cribs and bassinets. And they're getting fed digital information, digital entertainment, digital input from the earliest days right out of the womb. So we're now literally growing up digital. So it's really reshaping everything, every aspect of life. And I think people realize that now. And I would suggest it's one of the biggest drivers of social change. You could think about the printing press, the industrial revolution, and now the digital revolution. There's a term that in your book struck me and was kind of connected to this idea of digital immersion, because on the one hand, we're more connected to one another through our devices and connected to our devices more than ever. But at the same time, you use this term I found so interesting called untethering. So we're connected newly in one way, and then we're untethered or disconnected in another way. What does being untethered in the way you talk about it mean? And what does it have to do with with what we might describe as our new tether, our dependence on technological devices. Well, my book, Left to Their Own Devices, really the cornerstone concept is this notion of coming untethered. And what happened was my forte is to see connections between disparate things. I read voraciously and I try to sort of keep a finger on the pulse of what's going on and see patterns and trends very early on as they're emerging. And I started noticing across different fields from psychology, sociology, to business, to all the way to things like neuropsychiatry and communication, all these disparate studies coming out. But I realized that they are all captured under this umbrella term or notion of coming untethered. And what I mean by that is, if I put my sociology hat on, it's this idea that young people in particular, these digital natives, are unhooking from traditional social structures. You could think about getting married or joining a church or starting a family with children or these kinds of things that their parents or grandparents might have done routinely. Young people are unhooking from these kinds of behaviors. And at the same time, they're hyper attached to digital technologies. And so this is this combination of behaviors that if we look back at some of the foundational studies in sociology, what we find is that being anchored within in these social institutions, they sort of bolster physical and mental health. And so that was part of my motivation driving me. As I said, I, I have a master's and PhD in counseling as well as master's and PhD in sociology. So I saw this welling up of mental health issues going on at my university and it turns out at universities across the country, we're seeing the highest rates of things like anxiety and depression that we've seen in 30 years. And that concerned me. And I said to myself, behavior is driven by something. It doesn't come out of nowhere, out of a vacuum. And I thought to myself, what, what has changed from generations back? I can see the changes in my students to this generation of students. And that's when I started delving into, you know, what changed when and when did these things start happening? And we can track 
the beginning of the escalation of these sort of struggles amongst young people to the beginning of the cell phones and the social medias and things that they're so immersed in. I mean, if we're talking about what's changed, maybe it's a good idea to understand what our baseline is before the change. And in particular, you tie your exploration of digital connectivity to the way it's reshaping what you call the American dream. So first of all, what's the American dream? Establish our baseline before we can talk about what's changed. So I would say the American dream is a a kind of mythology, if you will. But it's a mythology that really took hold around World War II in this country. Everything was kind of constrained and, and rationed and everything. You can imagine the explosion of exuberance that would have happened when the soldiers finally came back and the war was over. And so that's what happened. It drove this idea of the American dream. Buy a house, get that stake in the American dream. Now people had more disposable income. There wasn't much to spend money on during those war years. So suddenly this boom of consumerism and this baby boom happened. The American dream idea became this little house in the suburbs with the white picket fence, car, the nuclear family, 2.5 kids and, and the dog. And the majority of Americans tried to achieve that dream. And and many or most of them did by about age 32. It was kind of a steps toward adulthood. You'd achieved autonomy. You'd achieved adulthood. You've achieved really the ideal lifestyle that was sort of encapsulated in this notion of the American dream. Well, you know, it's interesting because just as you had your chair of your department say, what does digital connectivity have to do with the work of a sociologist? I get asked maybe almost the inverse question, which is what is a narrative and literary scholar doing looking at ethical technology? And I guess I want to push a little bit on this idea that you posit of the mythology of the American dream to talk about mythology more broadly and the role of mythology in thinking about or providing insight into digital connectivity, technology broadly. The American dream is what you have described as a mythology. And what what I would describe as a mythology is a narrative that attempts to explain a dimension of the human condition or an attempt to really understand and define a group's experience, in this case, the American experience, through a kind of storytelling about an essential quality of that group. Now, as I said, I'm a literary scholar, so I'm particularly invested in the function of narrative and the significance of narrative. Narrative. And the link that you draw between myths and our behavior around tech is really interesting to me. So what role do you think that myths have to play in thinking about tech culture? Why should technologists think about and understand mythologies, broadly speaking? I'm not a historian, but I'm finding that understanding history and the context for behaviors is important and decontextualizing things, it sort of doesn't take into consideration what people are responding to in their environments. Why are they acting in the particular way? Myths have always driven behaviors. And you can go back to Cloud Levi-Strauss and all these guys uh, throughout the whole idea of postmodernism and the stories that we tell ourselves. I mean, that's a whole part of counseling ideas as well, is that the stories we tell ourselves drive our behaviors and drive how we think about our lives, etc. So they're very important. So think about what we were just talking about, this sort of myth of the American dream. Prior to industrialization, we lived on farms. A lot of families had 
big families, lots of children, because they were farmhands. You know, they helped between gathering eggs, the boys would work side by side with their fathers, you know, tilling the fields and planting and harvesting and all this. You were sort of a self-contained unit at the time. Uh, production was at one with the household, with the family. But once we went through industrialization, people moved off farms. They moved toward cities where the manufacturing and where the new jobs were. Combined with that, and the reason why I'm tying it to mythology is, we saw post into the 1900s, you know, the invention of the radio and, and the explosion later of television, we saw a big explosion in advertising. In other words, we needed consumers to buy this, all these goods, all these home appliances, the cars, you name it, what have you. We had to create these consumer Americans. And we did that by driving these mythologies. But this idea that we constructed these idealized notions of what it meant to be a family, what it meant to be a woman or a man, how you dressed, how you presented yourself, what you were supposed to be doing. Uh, I remember my mother, I said to her, she didn't seem like she was particularly motherly. And I said, why did you have kids? And she said, because that's what you did, because that's what you did. You see, that's what all these people drove along, guided by these mythologies that people sort of bought into. And I will say that the variety of lifestyles at the time and who you could be and how you could express yourself, who you could be in love with and who you could have a family with, all these sorts of things were very narrowly prescribed for people through these mythologies. And that, of course, has changed now in our new digital context. What kind of mythologies do you think govern technological contexts or our technological usage? Well, I think what's happened is that we have this sort of narrowly prescribed what that dream is. You're either getting married or you're a spinster, for example, as a woman. This idea that you could be a secretary or a housewife or a school teacher or a nurse. And, and that was pretty much it. There weren't like a wide variety you're not an ethical technologist in 1940 as a woman. I mean, practically, you know. The, so I think technology, with particularly the advent of social media, present a variety of possible lifestyles, a plethora of myths that we can sort of choose from, pick and choose. We can customize our lives in ways that they wouldn't have imagined uh, several generations ago. And we're getting models for these behaviors, models for these possible lives, mythologies created on the Instagrams of life so that you can look to them and say, hey, I want a more adventurous life. Look what that guy's doing. Or look at that guy working in valley poolside. That looks amazing. I want to do that. This is shifting the grounds of our conversation a little bit, but I really can't talk about technology and have you talk about mythology without also discussing the way that the digital is intersecting with the political right now. And maybe there are some questions about how our mythologies are governing that. You mentioned advertising as a formative mechanism of mythology. You know, last week I had a human rights and pro-democracy activist on the show from Sudan talking about the ways in which digital technologies have both enabled democratic 
democratic revolutions abroad and threatened democracy here in the United States. What do you see as some of the major shifts happening in political culture that result from online interaction or perhaps from the mythologies that undergird them? Is it just that social media is incredibly polarized right now? And by the way, I say that just uh, a little ironically to underscore how incredibly not minor that just actually is. Or are there other things we should consider? And I ask specifically because in the chapter where you write about this, you also cite psychological changes and expectations about immediate gratification and the expectation of complete customizability. And that makes me think about the impulsive nature of something like Twitter and the kind of hermetic information bubbles in something like Facebook that is so completely customizable so as to allow us to only talk to people who maybe already agree with us. Is the political foment its own phenomenon or is it part of a larger psychological or mythological shift that we should be paying attention to? I look at it as a double helix like DNA, the two strands of DNA that your listeners may be familiar with, where behavior shapes technology and technology shapes behavior. So when you look back, and I did sort of a historical deep dive in this, again, you go back to, again, one of the big drivers of social change I talked about earlier was the printing press. And the printing press allowed more individualism. Think about reading. Once in a while, we read out loud, right? We might read out loud to a child or something like that. But in general, we have a book open, maybe on our lap, and we're reading it individually. So it drove individualism. It also drove nationalism because books were printed now in Italian or Spanish or French, as opposed to just being handwritten in Latin or Greek and only available because they were so precious to very wealthy people or people in the church. Books were very precious and rare and expensive at the time. So uh, this sort of democratized reading and democratized literacy and began to spread ideas. That's why the printing press was so key. We then moved into like radio and that sort of reinvigorated tribalism. You know, you think about day one, people sitting around the fire talking about the hunt of the day. You know, the storytelling and mythology became how we process information in our brain through a narrative, through storytelling. So fast forward to the radio age and it's neo-tribalism again. Radios were originally pretty expensive. So families would sit around together and listen to everything from a presidential speech or talk, fireside chats, to radio shows and entertainment, to later they had live music from New York City, for example, the big band era and things like that. And people would sit around at certain times and listen to certain shows. And then that kind of thing happened again with television. Radio sort of transitioned into the television age. What happened with television, we had particular um, regulations in place. For example, the fair, Fairness Doctrine that would say, if you have a candidate, you have to have the other candidate, or you present one side of an issue, you have to present in the same amount of time the opposing side. And the idea was that we'd have an educated populace that could hear both sides of an argument, hear both sides of an issue, hear from both candidates, and vote accordingly. They'd made a decision based on the whole picture. But we removed those regulations, all of them, around the television that provided this sort of equal playing field, if you will, for everyone. 
And what happened is news media became branded. As you know, we have very conservative news media. We have very more liberal news media. And so people are only hearing one side pretty much from these branded. They're sort of catering to their audience, right? Be they very liberal, very conservative. And with the advent then of digital technologies and social media, one can customize their newsfeed, customize who they follow or who they listen to. And in that way, we create these information silos from branded news media to the online world where people aren't hearing both sides. They're not hearing the whole story. It's all tailored to a left or right sort of perspective. And that creates these information bubbles where, if you think about it, one of the ways that we make mistakes in decision-making is we don't really take into account the whole picture. And so we, it's kind of like a blind spot. Psychologists call the idea groupthink. We have a table of people and there's a boss, let's say, or a president, and everybody's saying, oh, yes, oh, yes, agreeing with everything and not speaking up and, and saying, hey, this is a problem because they're afraid to speak up. So what we're creating is kind of groupthink at scale. We're getting these idea bubbles going, and there's no dissenting voice to say, hey, wait a minute, that's not true, or that's not a good idea. And so we're sort of driving off these ideological cliffs sometimes because we're making these assumptions. There are sort of cognitive biases that are supported by being inside of these one-dimensional view information bubbles. So that is really creating, instead of a national identity, for example, in World War II, we're all pulling together. Now we're so disintegrated in a way. And that's the irony, I think, of digital technologies. On the one hand, we're more connected than ever. But on the other hand, we're more disconnected or shattered or splintered off into these very siloed information bubbles. And it's very disturbing because outside forces that may not have our best interests in mind, and in fact don't, can get in there and push people's fears, push people's worries, and insert information that say, see, I knew that was, that was it, and get people going in a direction that you can sort of foment all the way to violence. Maybe it's time to talk about a couple of our technological platforms that are responsible for enabling and amplifying some of those voices and creating the kinds of divisions that you're talking about here. You know, over email, you and I were talking about this conversation and you brought up the most recent news that AWS or Amazon Web Services just shut down Parler, the right wing platform that has become a central virtual location for Trump supporters and extremists. Again, just as you said, this kind of paradox is central hub of connectivity that really <laughs> brings together people who have splintered off from kind of a coherent consensual reality that the rest of us share. Many of those people on the platform use that platform to organize what we might describe as the horrific siege, or some might call an attempted coup on the US Capitol that happened last week. There's a ton to dive into here, but maybe I'll just start off by asking you whether you think the decision that Amazon Web Service has made, and by the way, Apple and Google have made similarly minded decisions to kick Parler off of their app stores. Whether you think that this decision stands with ethical principles, 
If so, what are those ethical principles? Well, again, I think that we came charging out of the box a few years ago with connected smartphones. We basically have these communication devices, these news and information devices with us 24-7. So this is really feeding our ideas, our mythologies, our our concerns, and and our biases. So that's a situation that we find ourselves in. And I think, having said that, I think the idea is, and what I've been thinking about lately is, are there ethical considerations to hosting on data center and servers and things? Do they have, the people that run the actual physical infrastructure that enables these kinds of communications that you and I have been talking about today, do they have any kind of ethical responsibility toward who they host? And it's interesting because I'm just starting to really think this through, and I'm, I'm writing a chapter about this in my next book that's coming up, and I'm in conversation with smart people about these things, and there's a real range of thinking, and I don't think we've put enough thought into this yet, because again, we sort of ran out the gate with these technologies, and that's why you know my first book, it's an opportunity to step back and say, okay, where are we now? Is this where we want to be? And I think that now, you know, the next steps are stepping back and looking at global digital infrastructure and saying to ourselves, okay, here we are. Is this where we want to be? And I pose the questions to a couple of folks that are uh, in the industry around IT and technology. And I said to them, are there ethical constraints to who you host? For example, do you host somebody that has a website or some kind of service to distribute child pornography? Or is there some kind of ethical or legal restriction? Or, or is it not your responsibility that people are doing things like that? And as I think about it, I would argue that these kinds of companies need to really step back and look at their digital infrastructure and question themselves about their ethical responsibilities and define what that is. Because I see that as risk management for these companies. Because suddenly it's like, well, wait, why were you hosting people that were doing these terrible things? You know, people died. Like you allowed that, you enabled that. And you could look at that from all kinds of perspectives, those kinds of extreme behaviors. Do you want that? And I would also say, you know, putting a different spin on it, do you want that behavior associated with your brand? And that's where you're going to get the potential for brand damage. So I think that the ethical behavior of businesses more and more, especially amongst younger consumers, they're they're concerned about this. And the idea that behaving ethically is good for business, and that's long-term thinking. Again, I'm in the early germination stages of thinking this through. But at this point in time, again, I see this as central to risk management for these kinds of tech companies. I see this as a long-term play, and I see this as protecting their brand against this kind of negative blowback that can happen when now people have actually died as a result. Words have consequences, and that's why I was so concerned about this. And there are foreign actors out there that are trying to actively manipulate, whip up fear, whip up concerns, exactly targeting people's 
most intimate values like guns or you know whatever that thing is that's what they're going to threaten and throw people off balance and once you're off balance you're not necessarily thinking rationally you're thinking very emotionally and that's exactly what people are trying to do it's very when i saw these programs rolling out knowing i've taught social psychology for example at usc for years i understood what they were doing and that they were applying social pressure at scale in a way that we never could have done before face to face to push people in these more extreme directions by threatening their core values by hyping up their their most primal fears and and that's really the worry here so Again, regarding the ethics and the ethical responsibility, we just charged out of the gates like a horse race. And I think that it's time to step back, one, on a personal level, to think about the role of technology in our own lives. And second, on a business and consumer level. And thirdly, probably on a governmental and regulatory level, to think through these issues, what they mean, and, and what we really intentionally want to be doing who we want to be hosting, and thinking of it from an ethical perspective. I think that's critical going forward for risk management for these big corporations. This is something I have a tough time with because I think that there's a difference actually between ethical behavior and risk management, and that the former oftentimes mitigates or at least allows for risk management to be perhaps more stable or more feasible. I go back and forth between saying, oh, you know, Twitter did the right thing. That's an ethical claim that what ought Twitter have done? Twitter did the right thing. Facebook did the right thing. And then saying, you know, actually, if Twitter or Facebook were thinking ethically, there's nothing that our president at this point said in the past week that has been more inflammatory or more significant in its polarizing, lying, insightful language than what he said this past week. The difference is that there are direct correlates that we can now causally draw between what he said and what happened. And so, you know, it also doesn't hurt that president is on his way out. There's going to be a Democratic majority in both houses of Congress as well as in the executive branch. And so tech companies are now thinking about their risk management in terms of governance by a Democratic set of executives and and Congress people rather than Republican ones. So this is my cynical side, I suppose, coming out and saying that, is this an really an ethical endeavor by the tech companies? And, you know, my cynical side says, mm, probably not. But there's this different set of questions that I want to ask around Amazon Web Service uh, shutting down Parler and Apple and Google acting similarly. Because on the one hand, it seems like shutting down extreme discourse, again, in my opinion, far too late and far too little, um, would limit access and extremist discourse and capacities for connectivity avert all of the things that you say have led to this particularly volatile moment would diminish the capacity of organizing by dangerous people who are emboldened and fortified through these kinds of newly digital connected groups and who can use the platform to organize what is essentially terrorism. Uh, on the other hand, it does seem to me that it opens up a lion's den because it leaves decisions about governance to these corporations. 
are you worried about Amazon and to some extent Apple and Google in their in their app stores having so much market power? Even as I'm glad of this decision, as I said, I worry about how government wields its power, even when it wields it justly. And should I not equally be concerned, or if not more concerned, when large corporations wield theirs, since we have no say in the way that they operate, no say in their governance, and no written pact, no constitution with them? I guess I would start back to where you began here, and I would say a couple of things. One, in the early days, when Facebook was getting started, all of these companies that you've just mentioned, the Twitters, the Facebooks, uh, et cetera, have what's called terms of service. You agree to these terms and they allow you to use this platform for free, for example. And one thing that I observed back in the day when MySpace was in its heyday was that over time, MySpace got overrun by hardcore pornography and I'm talking about like S&M imagery, like very blatant pornographic imagery, because although they had a line about that in their terms of service, they didn't call the content. They didn't do anything about it, in other words. And there were children on MySpace, young teenagers, for example, being exposed. And I'm not trying to be Betty Crocker, 1950. Don't get me wrong here. There's a time and a place, but is the time and the place for hardcore S&M pornography with, for example, a 14-year-old or 15-year-old on MySpace? In my mind, no. But that's what started happening. It, it became this kind of seedy environment. And I actually wrote an op-ed piece at the time calling for erogenous zoning. In other words, that's a regulatory frame that's used in cities for things like strip joints. We don't want a strip joint necessarily next door to the elementary school, do we? So <laughs> there's something called erogenous zoning that's gonna put that away from being next door to our children, for example, in a school. And that's what I called for in my space. You know, maybe there was some way to zone away digitally these images. So if adults wanted to access them, fine, but you had to go through some kind of an identity check to access the pornography. And this is just a specific example. Fast forward over to Facebook. Facebook started opening up to the public and in a way was a competitor at the time to MySpace and people started going over to it. And Facebook also had a very similar set of terms of service to MySpace, but the difference was from early on, they were culling that content that exceeded the terms of service. Things like extreme violence, things like hardcore pornography. And so it created a cleaner environment, if you will. So what's happening was people say, oh, I don't like censorship. I don't. Well, what they don't think about is the reason they have this sort of enjoyable environment, if you will, on Facebook, where they're showing photos of their friends and their family and their dog and everything is because Facebook is calling content. They've been doing that since day one. You don't want to see overt, you know, murders and, and blood and gore and horrible things. They call all that content. So you don't see that. So what happened was people started getting this idea that they're calling points of view or political perspective. So that was the rise of the parlor. 
And what was funny to me was, I get it. I get that, you know, people that are conservative, more right-wing wanted a space where they could talk about things. I, I watch all these things because that's my job. I watch the emergence of new technologies and, and see how they play out. And when I ended up going on Parler, exactly what I knew was going to happen. The first thing I see were these overt nudes going on. The first thing I saw and I laughed. And then all of a sudden people on Parler were calling for someone to call that content. So they didn't realize or didn't think about the fact they sort of took for granted the environment that was in Facebook that they didn't see content like that because Facebook was actively calling it. So it, it's a decision to be made in terms of what we could think about as the atmosphere. What atmosphere do you want to be in? And if you want the Wild West atmosphere of anything goes, you're going to get anything goes. And that's what Parler started to become. You can go towards overt violence. You can go towards overt sexuality and no, no holds barred of any kind. And so you get this kind of seedy effect or, you know, as you sort of go down that slope in, into the pits of hell in a way. So that's what really went on. If you think about the difference, you know, the, the comparison between the MySpace and the Facebook and what the outcomes were, the outcome was that MySpace folded. And, you know, I would say that it's because of the environment wasn't attractive anymore as it became seedier and seedier. It's like being in a seedy neighborhood, if you will. And yet Facebook has been successful precisely because they didn't allow that kind of environment. So how you make those decisions, of course, there are ethical gray areas, but, you know, there are pornography sites and there are, you know, violent games and violent sites. If you want to seek out that kind of content, you can seek it out. But if you're going to try to have a mainstream site that sort of appeals to everybody, those harder core depictions, I think, are going to drive people away in the long run. So that's where the decision is to be made. But where is that line? That's the difficult part. But again, a, a no holds barred Wild West atmosphere can become a quite a seedy and unpleasant place to, to interact and to be. And I think that's that's the balance to be struck. And that's the difficulty I think that Parler has had uh, without any kind of moderation on content. I want to shift our focus. We've talked about the political. What about the interpersonal? I know you've done some work consulting with dating apps and on romantic relationships. How should we think about shifts in romance, love, sex, courtship, etc. in the age of digital connectivity? I started my original studies on online interactions looking at relationships. I saw people forming relationships. And originally, researchers said it would be literally impossible to form a personal relationship over a computer network. Literally impossible, because you didn't have face-to-face -face proximity. Well, you know, you think about it, the human species, in fact, nature wants to survive, you know, wants to find a way to survive. And presented with this new environment, people, in fact, did find ways to meet, to fall in love, and in fact, had very powerful early experiences with that, saying they met their soulmate because they were constricted by not being able to have photos or it, one photo could have taken like half an hour to download on an early dial-up system of some kind, a bulletin board system or some other, and some didn't have the capacity at all. 
to exchange photos. So people talked. They developed intimacy. And many people I studied said they'd met their soulmate. Well, fast forward through a lot of the web-based Yahoo personals and, and all these, and even the eHarmonies and Match.coms were originally developed for the web. Later, as we moved into the era of the cell phone, these became apps and dating became gamified. So you have the things like the Tinders and the Grinders and the Bumbles where people are swiping now. My brother, a friend of ours, millennial guy, came to one of my book talks and my brother happened to see him swiping and swiping and swiping. And he said to him, what are you doing? And he goes, oh, I, I just swipe everybody. And then if somebody replies, I look them over. And this guy was going on three dates a day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner on the weekend. And my brother said, is this guy really looking for a relationship or is it just more and more and more? So what's happened is consumer psychology looks at choices. And there was a study I talked about in my book and I talked about in my TED Talk, the idea that consumer psychologists put out a variety of jams in a store, like 24 varieties of jam and gave people tastes and samples of jam and, and then a coupon to buy a jar of jam. The next day they put out like six varieties and the same coupon. And you would think with more choices, the 24 varieties that you would find exactly that jam for you, the apricot or the orange marmalade or the raspberry, whatever is your favorite jam. What they found was people faced with more choices, this almost overwhelming number of jam choices, were only a tenth as likely as those with fewer choices to buy jam that day. So psychologists call this choice overload. And that's what's happening with our young people that are reliant upon digital technologies, things like the Tinders and the dating apps and the Instagrams and the Snaps to meet others, meet a relationship. There's so many choices that nobody's choosing. Half of Americans are not in a romantic relationship right now, despite the fact we have more ways to connect than ever. A quarter of millennials say they don't even have any friends. And I would suggest that having an instant pool of availables in your pocket, we know that the ability to get somebody else is one of the factors in whether or not you're going to divorce. You know, you get in a fight and it's like, well, you know, but if you think you have a hundred or a thousand other attractive romantic partners in your back pocket, in your phone, why wouldn't you do, well, we're fighting. Let me see who else is out there. And you're out there swiping away. So I would suggest that it undermines two things. One, it undermines people's willingness to commit because they could say, well, maybe there's somebody just a little bit better. My partner's hot or my partner's nice or kind or whatever that quality. Maybe there's somebody just a little bit better, a little richer, a little prettier, a little whatever have you that you're interested in. So it inhibits people's willingness or interest in committing. And second, it inhibits people's idea that they're going to stay committed because again, you have an affair in your back pocket. So from the beginning stages of meeting and mating and people forming these deep connections, the gamification of romantic interest and relationships, it's the same mechanism, I would argue, 
as the one-armed bandit slot machine or pushing the button. And what we know about that from psychology is that's the strongest behavioral driver it is. Think about going to Las Vegas or somewhere where there's a slot machine. Ding, 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 ding. Oh, I didn't win. Ding, 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 ding. Oh, I didn't win. And then ching, 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 ching. Yay. You know, you won the jackpot, you know. And what do people do? Nine times out of 10, do they walk away? No, they, maybe I'll win again. You know, and they keep on going. They keep on going and they pour all their money back into the machine, you know. So that's called random reinforcement. It means sometimes you win, sometimes you don't. You pull that one arm bandit and it just, the, the things turn and nothing happens. You pull it again, turn, nothing happens. You pull it a third time, ding, 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 you won. And it's not like you always win because after a while people get bored. You never win. People give up in frustration. So those two don't keep the behavior going. It's random reinforcement. Sometimes you win, sometimes you don't. They keep you coming back for more to that. Keep playing. And we know gambling is an addiction. And that's why. It's a random reinforcer of behavior. So that's what they've baked in now to these dating apps. They've baked in random reinforcement to keep you coming back for more. It's now a game, just like gambling. And that's what people are doing. And it's really undermining that deep, intimate connectivity that they had originally through these intimate conversations. And it's also gone to the shallowness of just a face, a face. You're just swiping, swiping. You're not even reading or looking or really getting into a depth. I don't like that face. Next. As opposed to the earlier days, people would say, well, they're not really my type. But, oh, my gosh, I've never felt this strong a connection or a bond or the commonalities that I've developed with this person over the Internet. I ask this on behalf of all of the single ladies. More than that, I ask this on behalf of the large listener group that I have that's composed of young unmarried folks in the audience. Uh, students weighted highly a- among them. But I also ask this because this is a podcast about ethics and technology. And I think that the core of ethics is interpersonal relationships, how we navigate our relationships with others, particularly intimate others. Relationships, intimacy, sex gets to the core of that dimension of ethics. Is there a new ethic or ethical principle we ought to consider when thinking about changes to courtship, romance, and sex initiated by digital connectivity? particularly in the way that you're describing here, this kind of overwhelming sense of too many choices, this move on culture. What do you think? What's the ethical principle at stake? Well, I think the ethical presentation of yourself is what's at stake. The idea is that forming relationship, let's get down to the core of business. The core is trust. Wouldn't you say you want to trust? And this is any kind of relationship. This is a love relationship. You want to know your tr- you can trust your partner, correct? A business relationship, you want to trust that vendor. You want to trust that person's going to come through, right? All significant relationship, I would say, come down to trust. Okay. So digital technologies now are driving a kind of mistrust, I would argue, and in an unethical presentation of self. And what I mean by that is they allow now through filters through face tuning, through photoshopping, things that used to be done in the context of advertising before. You know, very expensive retouching, for example, of models' faces that were going to go into a cosmetic ad. But this idea that that that, that was a particular to the realm of advertising and, and it was expensive, you pay these retouchers, etc. Digital technologies have put those magical skills, if you will, 
into the hands of the everyday consumer. So now you can easily say, well, let me make my skin look a little better. Let me change my eye color. Let me change the shape of my lips or my face or narrow my nose or whatever that might be to appear more flawless, more perfect. And so you're getting what I call a virtual mirror effect going online. So instead of looking into a mirror and seeing yourself reflected back, you're seeing a warped, almost a funhouse image that they know isn't them reflected back. But this virtual mirror effect is, in a sense, setting up someone for disappointment. You know, your intended date, you know, you show up and they say, well, wait a minute, you know, you look completely different in person because you're presenting a false self online. So I would say that it's difficult for two things. One, interpersonally, the other person is disappointed because you didn't show up the way they were expecting. But second, think about it this way. It erodes one's own self-esteem because imagine putting yourself out there. You're so fabulous and so wonderful and you get all these likes and follows and comments. Oh, you're on fire because you look so fabulous, but you you know you don't look that fabulous, you see? So you're getting all this positive reinforcement for sort of a mask that you're putting on and not your real self. And so, you know, we always want to put our best foot forward, right? You and I talked about makeup. Women put on makeup oftentimes to try to look nice and even out their skin tone and all these things. So men, you know, combing their hair, doing their hair a certain way or dress a certain way, you want to make a nice impression. That's a that's part of our sort of social dance that we do. First impressions we know are very, very important. But we're now creating these sort of false impressions. And again, what I would say is the further that presentation of self is from our real self, the more the chances that we're going to erode how we feel about ourselves. You know, if we're presenting ourselves as much thinner, much more beautiful, but presenting this false self, I would say that's where the ethical considerations are around presentation of self in a digital environment, on dating apps, on the Instagrams. And I think that it poses a challenge, not just to the other person, But what's not thought about enough is, that's why I'm trying to emphasize it today for your listeners, is the erosion of our own self, our own good feeling about ourselves, our own self-esteem and how we hold ourselves, because the greater that distance is between real self and false self portrayed on social media or dating apps. I have a question that uh, many of us are probably all considering, given that we're all isolated in the middle of a pandemic and trying to have relationships, romantic or otherwise, in, in the context of digital connectivity. What is tech doing to our relationships in this moment? Should we celebrate the fact that tech provides the means by which to connect during this time of isolation? You know, I hear my students in this moment teaching this class on ethical technology say, yeah, I have this kind of cynical view toward tech, but thank God for my phone. Thank God for Zoom. Thank God for my ability to, you know, FaceTime and Snapchat right now in this moment. Should we be celebrating the tech that connects us right now? Or are there reasons to be more cautious? Well, it's funny because my whole concept of my book was coming untethered and and coming untethered from ourselves, each other, from our bodies, from nature, and that this is, you know, problematized. But the idea being now is people have said to me, well, gee, aren't we glad it's not 1971 or 1962 when we're going through 
this pandemic, that we do have these technologies like Zoom so that there can be business continuity or educational continuity or even continuity of our social lives and our connections with friends and family. And I would say, yeah, sure. But I think what's this is an interesting moment, sort of a trial by fire moment. Having had the ability, what we were just talking about, to you know swipe your life away and just swipe, swipe, swipe and have three dates a day and have this sort of merry-go-round of casual sort of superficial level dating has been normalized, if you will, has been a normal part of many young people's experience lately because it's available, because of all these choices. But now in pandemic times, this becomes problematic or impossible. You're not going out to brunch and lunch and dinner, you know, three times a day and going around. It's just not happening the way that it was, right? We're not entering into these public spaces in the same way. Sure, people are still dating, but I'm saying in general, uh, and especially in the cities, you know, people have really pared back or they're told to shelter in place, stay at home. So now it's this moment where I think it could be a good moment to re-examine our values, re-examine our priorities, because here's the thing. And again, I'm not trying to be Betty Crocker. I'm, I'm saying this stuff in terms of what the research shows us. And what the research shows us is that, particularly for men, we're happier and healthier when we're in a committed relationship, particularly a marriage. It provides unbelievable physical as well as mental health benefits. There's a host of research out there that'll blow your mind. People are more likely to overcome cancers, for example, when they're in a relationship versus not. I mean, on and on. Things that you wouldn't even believe are connected are. So here we are in this moment where the merry-go-round has stopped. The merry-go-round of dating has stopped. And they're sitting in their apartment alone going, you know what? <laughs> maybe maybe this wasn't so great after all. And, and, and people are expressing that loneliness and that wish they had somebody. So this is a moment of a hard reset of life. And when we power back up or boot back up again, how do we want to be? You know, this is a great time to examine your life, to think about, are you happy being alone, being on your own? And there's nothing wrong with that either. But what I'm suggesting is I don't think that the happiness in life, the true contentment, not happiness as an emotion, but just contentment, which is what you want, the sort of long-term, stable, good feeling of well-being, I'm not so sure you're getting it from that merry-go-round of constant swiping and dating. So this may be a time to really take stock of your life, to think about what you want and how you want your life to be and how you want to feel. And really manifest that it, when you've got this next shot coming around here to reemerge into the social world again and really rethink your own values and your own behaviors in terms of your managing of your love and your romantic relationships. You know, you talk in your book about the role of tech in shifting not only the terms of relationships, but the terms of empathy. And of course, empathy is the backbone of ethics. What shifts about empathy in the terrain of the digital? And should we be concerned about the capacity for empathy? I think empathy is so critically important. And that's a cornerstone of what's called emotional intelligence. And I would suggest that the most successful people that you or I could even think of have pretty high levels of empathy. 
it's interesting because one of the C-level executives from one of the biggest companies in the world that you know, I'm not going to name the name, but I was on a call with him recently and it was kind of an executive summit type of effect. And he said, you know, going through this pandemic moment has provided a sort of window into people's personal lives that he wouldn't have had before. Let's say his employees are coming into the office, you know, he sees them presenting themselves in a professional way at work and that's it. Now he's seeing them juggling children and partners and houses and dogs running through. And he says, I've really developed a sense of more empathy towards my employees as a result of this experience. So the idea being that that is a cornerstone and interacting in solely a digital environment, people can say cruel things. I see people trolling and saying, you know, someone makes a mistake, for example, a young person. And I've seen this in the comments, and I'm sure your listeners have too on TikToks or on other social media. They'll say, why don't you just go kill yourself? And young people that haven't yet developed strong coping skills haven't yet developed a strong sense of themselves. They're insecure. You know, they may not feel good about or real secure about who they are, where they're doing, you know, at all. Those kinds of words can really drive people and have driven people over the edge. And that's a marked lack of empathy. Why? Because we're not in the physical co-presence of one another. You can depersonalize people online. It's not like your brother, or your sister, or your best friend or something that you know. It's just some random person. So you can just say whatever. And people just throw out these casual, cruel comments. And that's why. It's because of that lack of physical co-presence with one another. They call it the stranger on the train effect. And, and this idea that you know you might say things that you wouldn't say face-to-face to people online, good or bad. But that's part of what's driving is a lack of accountability the lack of being able to connect the dots between what you've said, that go kill yourself or whatever cruel thing, to who specifically you are. And that's the distance that digital puts between us that drives this sort of unethical, this cruelty, these sorts of commentaries. So one of the things that I I do say in this book, and I would say, is that We need to find spaces to connect face-to-face. And again, I'm not trying to be throwback or throw away your devices or anything, but we've sort of came barreling out of the gates like a horse race, you know, at high speed. And, you know, we need to kind of step back and think about the role that these devices play in our lives and find ways to reconnect with ourselves, with others in face-to-face environments, as we can, again, as COVID lifts and we move through this pandemic moment with nature, all these sorts of things that have been stripped away by our hyper connection and hyper attention to these devices and to social media. You know, another dimension of connectivity that I really wanted to ask you about is the relationship between being connected to and through our devices and our privacy, which obviously is changing in an era where all of our movements are tracked, where all of our communications and actions online have digital footprints. What, what's your take on digital privacy? Are you concerned about this? Some people say privacy is over, and a lot of young people live their lives online. There was a film where it was an early experiment of living online with cameras and People agreed to be on camera all the time and to have their lives filmed and to live together in this sort of communal, almost frat house atmosphere kind of thing. 
And it really devolved into chaos and craziness. And this was an early experiment, but yet how many young people are putting everything online now? You know, their most intimate feelings, their behaviors, their bodies, their everything is logged and put out there for social approval. So for many young people, privacy is something for older people, I think. Yet there is a need for privacy. And I think that's maybe something to think about for younger audiences is I've had my students lose not just jobs, but internships, because now more and more companies are looking at your social accounts to get a sense of who you really are. And again, that distance between who you really are and who you're presenting themselves yourself to be can quickly be discerned by looking at some of your social accounts in many cases. So the problem with digital, even if they're private, people say, well, my thing's private. Well, yeah, but other people can screenshot things, which they do, and share things that were thought to be private. So I would just say, assume that if you write it down or take pictures or, or text it to somebody, that someone can see it, like your boss. Do you want your boss to see this? If that's the question that you ask, do I want my boss to see this in two years from now or four years from now when I'm graduating college? If the answer is yes, then go ahead with it. But if the answer is no, think twice. And I think that that's the kind of thing that you know we need to sort of self-regulate as well, what is private and what is out there for public consumption. And I think maybe Europe has it right. They're coming up with regulations where you have the right to be forgotten in a sense. And, you know, we all do dumb stuff, but people that grew up in an era pre-digital didn't have their every move recorded by somebody else and uploaded on Twitter and tagged and look what this guy's doing at this party, dumb. And and that is, I think, the a pressure, the pressure on young people not to make any mistake is enormous. And let me tell you what, people that are grandparents and great-grand, they made a lot of dumb mistakes. The difference is it's not they were mistake-free and perfect. It was that it wasn't captured and uploaded and going viral on social media. That's the difference. And it puts an inordinate amount of pressure, I think, on young people today when things go haywire. So here's the inverse question to the one about surveillance. As long as we're talking about digital devices as the background to our public lives, uh, what about our inner lives and our consciousnesses? I wanted to ask a question about the nature of digital interaction and its impact on our, on our consciousnesses, or more specifically, on our attention. I'm teaching online, and each quarter I face this dilemma of how ought I to teach, knowing that my students, if they're learning on their computers, you know, they have at their fingertips every opportunity to turn their attention to an immense number of distractions. Our phones, laptops, iPads are all constantly sending us these notifications and they're designed to minimize as much as possible the friction between accessing the things that entertain us and call for our attention with a demand that is almost impossible to ignore. You know, um, anecdotally, a few months ago, I experimented with not trying to with trying to not check my phone for 12 hours so that I could concentrate on my writing. And that's something that I used to be able to do, you know, up until about five years ago with relative ease. Now I tried it and I couldn't do it. When students sit in a classroom in person, there's, I think, what we would call friction built into the act of being in a classroom and checking one's emails or messages or watching YouTube or looking at notifications that come in is a little bit harder because you meet with the friction of the fact that you're all in the same space 
and that you're all there as a community and you see that other people are paying attention. And so the friction built in is public awareness or perhaps awareness of somebody else watching you or the acknowledgement that you're kind of in a community. But if we're all solo, that friction is, I found, almost completely gone. And so it's easy to check those notifications and so hard to resist doing it. How are you thinking about the attention economy? It seems to me there's a couple things going on. I mean, we know that we're getting, you know, sort of dopamine hits when when those chimes go off, that there's a message. Ding. It seems to me that many people have grown accustomed to a certain, let's say, velocity of information coming in, kind of like a river flowing along. And when it's cut off, you're also cutting off that dopamine reward system in your brain. You want that. You want another hit. Well, let me just see. Well, let me check my email. Let me see my messages. Did, let me, oh, no, no new message. You want that. So I think that that is a, an issue. And as you said, particularly for teachers, professors, there's also a social psychological aspect of being, let's say, for your example, in a classroom together. There are norms of behavior. And as you said, part of that is the surveillance. You know, the professor or teachers looking at you as a student, they can see if you've got your phone out or not, you know, and, and you can look at somebody. And that prohibits or inhibits that kind of checking, checking, checking behavior. But as you said, now that everyone's solo and isolated under COVID, that friction is removed and it makes it much more difficult to monitor. And the I would suggest that the social psychological properties of us all being together in a room have also been diminished. Even though we're in a Zoom room, you can still hold your phone down or to the side, you know, sort of off camera. You can be doing multitasking on your computer. I mean, I, I think that that's very difficult. And I think it's more difficult for particularly younger people that are used to that river of information to sit quietly with themselves, to go out in nature, which we know is healing and restorative to your peace of mind, because it's like, well, what am I going to do? I'm bored. You know, they're used to that high level of stimulus. But I think that your brain also needs a rest sometimes. So we somehow have to figure out how to balance those things when we're driven by COVID to be online constantly with Zoom and in these rooms and things like that. And then that drives that attention towards all these apps and things and the need to have quiet spaces for thinking that allows creativity, those aha moments. We need to give ourselves the time and the space away from digital tech for those kinds of things to happen, for deeper thinking, for example, to happen. And that's becoming harder and harder to do. Like you said, setting it aside for those long jaunts of writing that we need to do. But that's what we need. And we have to maybe make that a part of our day-to-day -day ritual of life, our pattern of life, where we allow the times where we're not connected like that somehow. We have time for one more question, and I want to go back to where we started with storytelling. We started off talking about mythology, and I wanted to end with science fiction. The class that I teach on ethical tech is anchored in science fiction, and I rationalize that decision about anchoring a class about real tech practices, culture, and production of technologies in a course that largely explores the arena of the imaginary. 
by arguing that before any technology can be created, it has to first be imagined. And to that end, if we want to understand our vision of tech and our thinking about tech and our decisions about what technologies to create and the story we tell ourselves about why we create it, we have to first explore the narratives we tell ourselves and the stories that interact with and often direct that imagination. In your work, you cite science fiction, uh, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, George Orwell's 1984, E.M. Forrester's The Machine Stops. What's your thought about the use and the significance of science fiction when thinking about the ethics of tech? I happen to love science fiction. I grew up reading uh, Ray Bradbury. I read every book he'd ever written by like junior high. I met him as a kid a couple of times at my school and was really inspired by his work. I like the way that you said that. And, and I think it is justified to think through science fiction. And in fact, I've been to some meetings with the Department of Defense where we've actually had science fiction writers there to think about imagined futures. And I go back to a saying that I've always sort of enjoyed, and that is what the mind can conceive, it can achieve. So I think that a lot of engineers, for example, have always enjoyed science fiction, be it the Star Treks to, you know, to these various books that, that you mentioned. And the idea being that, can we beam you up, Scotty? You know, can we create these sort of technologies that we're seeing in these imagined worlds? Can we make them real? And that's always been a challenge, I think, for engineers, for example, to do that. One of the spiritual threads I think you're feeling and seeing in my book was the book had a first edit by Alexander Pornell. His father, Jerry Pornell, is a best-selling science fiction author. And so Alex actually edited my book and had made some suggestions here and there for particular science fiction that fits with some of the concepts that I was elucidating there. So that's part of what you're feeling there is his spirit throughout this book. And, and I'm so grateful for his incredible, the incredible dialogue that I was able to have with him um, that, that wove in more of those threads that I wanted to weave um, and my next book, The Spirit of It, is is about the machine stops, an imaginary world where that it was kind of a, an imagined internet. You know, people were online, if you will, talking and, and exchanging ideas and their air conditioning and heating and food and everything came to them in these little isolated apartments through the machine. And the horror of the science fiction tale was that the machine stopped. So I'm exploring that aspect as we're driven by COVID to be online, as you were talking about, for school, for work, for increasingly everything, for delivery of our food, everything. Is We're really living in the machine stops environment now. What happens if the machine stops? And we just saw that going on in Nashville with the Nashville bombing that, that happened in uh, Christmas Day 2020 and looking at all the dominoes that fell as a result of cutting the heart of the digital infrastructure there. And, you know, there's no 911 services. Uh, all the Walmarts and all the stores and the malls had to, had to close because their cash registers wouldn't work. The markets closed because they couldn't process credit cards and the ATMs were all down as a result. Planes were all grounded because they couldn't get the communications technologies going. So suddenly the machine stopped. That's what I'm exploring. And I, I think there's a great value to looking at the imaginations and what could be in these imagined worlds, seeing how that might map onto our realities as we go, 
and having them there as sort of inspirational stories and mythologies and science fictions that we can create uh, and strive toward. And, and that may be toward the good, some new technology, and it may be toward the cautionary side, which is often underlying science fiction, the horror story of it. Well, what if the machine stops? Well, here we are in that moment, and we need to think about that in reality. And so I think that they can really guide our thinking in terms of what kind of future we really want to live in. You know, it's interesting when I teach the machine stops in my class, I teach the horror as not the machine stopping, but the machine. My students look at the machine and they say, my God, this is horrific. But but from the, what you've described as the horrors of the machine stopping, or what I describe as the horrors of the machine itself, to Aldous Huxley, most of the stories that you've cited and that I've cited and that I teach and that you're interested in enlist these technologies in service of creating a atmosphere of dystopia. These are dystopian stories for the most part. I would say, you know, science fiction starts off with these utopian technologies and veers very quickly into dystopian world building. That's not necessarily good news for those of us who think about science fiction as the template for our imaginations of the possible or what we want to invent. Are you optimistic about the direction and the future of tech and the outcomes of that future for the humans who use it? Well, Am I optimistic? I guess I'm cautionary. For example, one fellow was like, well, we don't need to go to conferences anymore. You know, we can just remote in, you know, we don't need this kind of thing. And I guess that's the cautionary moment, I would say, is that it turns out that COVID is the biggest social experiment, certainly in our lifetime. I mean, maybe you could go back to the Black Plague or something. But in our lifetimes, I would say this is the biggest global social experiment that we've ever known. And one of the outcomes is we kind of miss seeing each other. We kind of miss going down to the local restaurant or the bar or gathering or hearing live music or going on a date or having Thanksgiving dinner with the family or whatever it might be. We kind of miss those moments. We miss going to the conferences and sitting around and having dinner and, and chatting with people in a casual way, as opposed to the more formalized Zoom meetings that we're on. And so I think that that's the thing is that although we have the conveniences, like like you said, what would we be doing if we didn't have um, the internet right now during this pandemic? It's certainly enabled us a continuity to survive our businesses and to get our food and all these sorts of things. But I still want to find room for the human, the non-technological our bodies, our connections to each other face-to-face, our connection to nature and the sublime, the things that are bigger than ourselves and that spiritual feeling. So I think that, you know, just going forward, as you said, the machine is the horror. That's exactly right. It was the, the machine stops us written that the machine is the horror. And it can be if we forget our human nature, if we forget to connect with one another and to connect with nature and things like that things that keep us healthy and happy. And I guess that that's where I would, I would strike a balance. I'm generally a very optimistic person, but you want to also say, hey, wait a minute, there's a pothole you're about to drive into here and blow your tire out. Let's go around that. 
And I, and I guess that's what I'm trying to do is really just find those potholes in the road, find those icebergs when you know the ship is sailing that we don't want to sink the ship because we hadn't thought about that. So I think it's striking that balance somehow and, and maybe rebalancing and recalibrating our relationship to technology. Thank you, Julie. Thank you.